please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I will be reading Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Luke 9, 18 through 22. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others, they say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Father, once again, through your eternal mercies, allow us to have ears to hear this passage of Scripture. Allow that our hearts be opened as Peter's to see ever deeper the truth and the glory and the treasure that is your Son, I pray. Amen. Questions are questions, but some questions are of preeminent importance to answer correctly. For instance... One of the first great controversies in the church was over the question, does a man have to believe in Jesus Christ and be ceremonially circumcised in order to be saved? (laughs) That's a big issue going on in the New Testament in Paul's ministry. And Paul says... If you answer that question with, yes, you do. He says, you're under God's eternal condemnation. The wrong answer to that question has eternal and fatal consequences. And so is the wrong answer to the question that Jesus asked in this passage in verse 20. Who do you say that I am? Let me tell you, there are a lot of people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That they endeavor to try to live by its moral standards. 
They affirm, yes, Christ was born of a virgin. He died on the cross, sacrificed Himself for the forgiveness of sins, and that people who would, who would believe in Jesus could have that forgiveness and have eternal life. And believe all that stuff. And they don't know Jesus from a hole in the wall. All those things I just said that many people believe, Bob Dres knows this. He was witnessing to a Jehovah Witness a few weeks ago. You look at their literature, they say those things. But when you peel back, what do you mean? Who do you really say Jesus is? They miss it by a million miles. They're heretics. They deny Jesus' deity which the church has universally and clearly condemned in the 300s with the Nicene Creed. Now, we can go to Mormons, the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's who we believe He is. But they got the answer of who He is all wrong. Now, many people say, but, but no, I believe in Jesus. No, you don't. Jesus is not glorified. He is not honored because you use His name, but when you attribute to the meaning of that name things that are really not who He is. And you're denying who He actually is. What if you were to show up at some friend's house and they opened the door and went, Oh my goodness, you're here. I'm so happy. And they just sit down for a while and they serve you tea or whatever your drink is and they prepare this glorious meal for you and they bring out the, the china and a tablecloth and candlelight and this glorious dinner is ready and they seat you down and you're just amazed at how honored you are in their presence. And then they look at you and they say, I'm so happy to have you. And they fill in the name of their greatest hero, some political hero or general or maybe you like R.C. Sproul. Maybe you, they think you're R.C. Sproul for some reason. I don't know. They're in a daze. At that point you realized, that's not who I am. Are you honored by all that service to you? Not now. You're somewhat offended. When you get the question wrong, whether you use His name or serve Him, whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter if you use the name in English, Jesus. The biggest question in the world, the question that Dr. Luke has so strategically and deliberately formed in the way he's done his narrative is, to the reader now, who is Jesus? He's been very thoughtful about this. He, he has said to the reader, Peter didn't know this at this time, but reader now, let me tell you about what the angels said to Mary and to the shepherds. And, and we got that glimpse. And then Jesus shows up in His public ministry. And He says, reader, listen. People are really confused. Who is He? Who is He? But the demons no. You're the Son of God. And then He showed us later on the twelve were there in a boat and Jesus speaks to a storm. And then He says, Reader, listen to what 
His disciples said, Who, there's the question, then is this guy? They command storms and water and they obey Him. And then He leads us to Herod's comment. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And then last week, we saw Luke give the implicit answer to the question when Jesus fed the 5,000 or 15,000, when thousands of loaves of bread and fish are coming from His hand. And now, that leads Him to this pinnacle, this drama, alone with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, about 35 miles up north of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, guys, You've been with me now for a long time. I'm going to ask you directly. Who do you think I am? And the timing of that question in Jesus' ministry is key. Because He has just finished His Galilean ministry and He's ready to make His turn down south into Judea and into Jerusalem in order to be killed. And so with the intimate twelve that He's chosen, it's imperative that He begins to relate to them more information about the essence of His true messianic Ministry. So, if you're in Luke, chapter 9, let's begin with verse 18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. And He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others, they say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Okay, so here we have it. The populace, thousands of Jews, they're of the opinion that Jesus is a great man. His signs, his preaching, his healings, looks like... We got Elijah. Elijah had a prophetic ministry with lots of miraculous signs. Maybe this is Elijah. He preaches like John the Baptist against sin. Maybe he's somehow John risen or some other prophet. That's high praise. But they missed it by a mile. Jesus goes on in verse 20. Then he said, to them. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Bingo. You got it. Matthew gives us more information. I mean, Peter, look, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, because you said that, and there's a sense in which you know that in a real way, Peter, 
It's because my Father revealed that to you. And he's representing the editor. They're all saying, yes, the Christ. This confession is the turning point in the narrative of Luke. This is the first time any of his disciples have come out that bluntly and said, yes, you're the Messiah, the Christ. They got the title of who he is correct. He's the promised one, the anointed one, the son of David, the sovereign king. That's what they're meaning by Christ. Christ, we get that word from the Greek, which Luke has written in Greek. It comes from Christos. That Greek word Christos means anointed. It's translating the Hebrew Mashiach which means anointed one. Now, lots of people in the Old Testament were anointed. Prophets were, kings were anointed, priests were anointed. But throughout the prophets, there's this unfolding of this promise that God's saying, one is coming. One will be anointed. Therefore, they came to put the definite article before it, saying, no, there is a, an, the, excuse me, anointed one, the, the Mashiach, the ma, Messiah, translated in Greek, the Christos. And so they confess, you are the one we've been waiting for, that the prophets have promised to deliver Israel, the Christ. But that confession did not mean that Peter or the twelve understood the true nature of Jesus' messianic mission. Yet. And get it? Yet. See, they, like all their fellow Jews, they did have the notion that the Messiah, the ruling one, He will come as the destroying King of all of Israel's enemies. And bring peace. And they're right. Eventually, He will do that. But they never anticipated two comings of Christ. Only one. They had the prophecies of the Son of David, the King, the Sovereign One, the Ruler. They had all that right. They didn't account for that Messiah is also a priest who offers a sacrifice. And so, that's why in the context, right after the confession, you're right. You got that right. I am the one. I am the Messiah. But immediately, Jesus begins to clarify His mission as the Messiah, Savior. Start with verse 21. And then, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Saying, I'm the Messiah. But get it, guys. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he says to the twelve, you got it guys, but listen to me, don't go around blabbing this to everybody. Don't go around in the marketplace and we'll go to the next village and say, Jesus, He confirmed it. He's the King. He's the Messiah. Don't do that. Because what that term will mean to all your fellow Jews is not what it really means right now in my coming. What they think that means is far apart from the reality. And therefore, saying and blabbing that I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, won't do any good right now, guys. And that's why Jesus begins to instruct His apostles about what His coming is really all about. Guys, we're headed to Jerusalem. And I'm going there on purpose in order to be killed. for the sins of my people and to be raised. Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, guys, you've got to get this. Israel will not in the near future experience a glorious messianic freedom from her enemies like Rome. You're right. I am the anointed king of Israel. But guys, as part of that mission, I'm coming to fulfill my messianic mission of Isaiah chapter 53. Where the Lord God is pleased to crush for the transgression of my people. That's the text. Let's now spend the rest of our time thinking about the importance of the question that Jesus asked the disciples. That Jesus, through Dr. Luke, has been asking people in this gospel ever since. Who do you say Jesus is? First of all, let's notice about that question that there is an objectively correct answer. It's, in other words, when Jesus asked this, he asks it knowing there's right answer and there are wrong answers. This question did not mean then and it doesn't mean in 2011 that what we mean is, do you love Jesus? Who do you say He is? Oh, good. Define Him however you want Him to be for you. Jesus is not some small group facilitator. Good answer, Peter. Okay, no, no wrong answers here, guys. Come on, give me some more ideas. Let's brainstorm and have a conversation over this. Who am I to you? No. 
even in the context. Who are the crowds saying that I am? Pretty high praise, Jesus. Some think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some think you're Elijah. Those are wrong answers. That's his point. Okay, got that. I hear. But, guys, who do you say I am? They had a different answer. The Christ. That's right. They're wrong. I am not merely John raised from the dead. I am not just Elijah or another prophet. I am. Objectively. Whether you think it, believe it, or feel it. The truth is the truth. I am the Christ. See, we live in an age where many people say, well, to me, Jesus is loving and He's only accepting to everybody no matter what. Wrong answer. Objectively incorrect. Well, Jesus is great moral teacher and He sacrificed His life. What an example we are to follow. That's who He is. You missed it. How one feels about Jesus does not change who He truly is historically and objectively is. There is a correct biblical answer to the question, who is Jesus? And that answer is not based upon how you feel. It's not based upon your family of origin experiences. It's not based upon your opinion. There is an objective Reality to the answer of that question that is the truth as opposed to error. This is really important in our day of relativism just everywhere, especially where people, even within the church, think that spiritual experiences are true experiences, but not true in a sense of believing in objective truth. Truth that is true whether you feel or experience it or not. That philosophy of life is just in the air of the Western culture nowadays. I remember when I was in seminary, within academics, there, there was, and it's still everywhere, a move by many so-called Christian academics to come against what they would term propositional uh, theology or truth. Propositions are statements. See, see, what they mean is we need to move away from thinking that we can have a subject and a verb and declare or affirm something or deny something else to affirm or deny our propositions. We need to move away from having Christianity be part of that. That filtered down to... Good thing it's gone now. But many of you know for a few years there is a big buzzword within evangelicalism called the emergent church. So that kind of philosophy from 
seminaries boiled down and filtered down into, hey, let's do church that way. And that's why when you would talk to a lot of these pastors, you, they were like jello. You could never get them to make a proposition about Christ. Do you believe that one must embrace Jesus Christ as God's eternal Son who became a man and died for sin? And then they'll just, and, and you listen, and you listen, and, and, and you don't know what their answer is. It's like this skill of not buying into this disgusting thing called propositional truth. Well, Jesus was all for propositional truth. Good proposition. Peter says, I affirm, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. See, let me give you an example. What do I mean by propositional truth? For instance, here's my proposition. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. That's a proposition. Or, another one, Jesus is one person, two distinct natures, divine and human. That's who He is. Therefore, Jesus, here's a negative proposition, a call to denial, is not created. But He is eternal. The second person of the Holy Those are propositions. Flee from people who want to move Christianity away from making such statements. But even without people that do that deliberately, like that, I don't want to do that, you just hear it in a lot of the lingo of us Christians who think, well, that's my spiritual truth and I love Jesus and He's my Savior. And Then if my family member or a friend makes a proposition that is contradictory, that's okay. Be, their experience of God is good too. It's all good. No. It's not all good nor necessarily at all. All true. See, within the religious world there is what you call an ecumenical movement. Ecumenism. One of my professors in seminary, he was one of the big time American evangelical leaders in this movement where they want to say, let's essentially bury the hatchet, Rome and Protestantism. Come on. Let's get together in evangelism and in worship. Let's not get stuck on our theologies which might divide us. Let's come together around Jesus. You love Jesus? Okay. Is Jesus, we, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. Good. Let's stop there. Let's get together and do stuff. Let's not define very much what we mean by Jesus or salvation. Because when we do that, we get into trouble. And we might divide again. In other words, this is the spirit of essentially let's come around if, if you're doing it in English language Jesus. Spanish, Jesus. Let's get around and confess that name and leave it pretty much undefined. That way we can all get along. It's that spirit. But it is Jesus He's the one who asks who am I? And it demands 
a declarative statement. And therefore, there are correct answers to that question. And there are incorrect. And there are some that are partially correct. It's not a matter of personal opinion or preference. Where one answer is just as good as the next. It's a matter of truth revealed in Holy Scripture. Which now, that means Jesus Christ, born of Mary, this itinerant historical preacher 2,000 years ago in Palestine, He is the divisive one. Jesus' question is divisive. It was at this time in Jesus' public ministry now where many of His disciples stopped being His disciples and left Him. Because Jesus was becoming more clear in relating to them who He is. And that clarity for many was becoming too narrow-minded. And John 6 lets it clear. Many of His disciples stopped following and because I hope that you're one like this, I'm this way. B- by nature, most of us, we prefer peace and not confrontation. And really good thing in personal relationships. But because of that, there's always this warning to be careful when it comes to truth. Statements lest we slip into horrible error. Because I may say this. And the person I love so much would contradict. But objective truth always divides. And it divides people into camps. And in our text, we can even see the division that Jesus just created. Who are the crowds saying I am? This that and the other. But, who do you say I am? We have a different opinion. Our answer is different than theirs. You're the Christ. Guys, you're right. You're right. There is an objectively true answer. You're right. And my Father did something in your heart, Peter, to see this objectively true answer. What the multitude said was pretty flattering. Prophet. Awesome. Jesus didn't say, oh, that's so happy. He didn't do that. The religion of Islam says the same thing. The Quran says it. They affirm Abraham is a great prophet and Moses, oh, and Jesus, the prophet of great prophets. What an affirmation. And it's dead wrong. And it has eternal condemning consequences 
On the other hand, there are always been many, is particularly intellectual types who, who will say some of the stupidest things. Like, no, I don't believe Jesus is God come in the flesh to die for sin. But, I think He was a great moral, ethical leader to which C.S. Lewis, as you know, so adequately put to death such thinking in his book, Mere Christianity, when he writes, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is this. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. (laughs) Lewis goes on. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so, here in Luke chapter 9 now, on this occasion in Caesarea Philippi with the twelve, Jesus knew exactly what He was doing. By getting His disciples to first rehearse to me what the populace is saying, He was going to bring them, now you, and He's going to get them to contradict He's going to get them to far surpass their answer. So, who, who are they saying? Oh, oh, Jesus, they're saying this and that. And, and there's the twelve. But who do you say I am? Silence. You can probably cut that thick silence with a knife. And then the mouth. Peter breaks the silence. The Messiah of God. Yes, you're right, Peter. So, so far, we've contended as we look at this question two things. The answer to that question is an objective truth. Totally apart from what any subject 
any person personally feels or thinks, there is a truth. Second thing we saw is because of that, Jesus himself with this question is divisive. And the last thing to consider about this question is this. From our text, we see that Jesus' identity and our answer to the question of who Jesus is has deepening levels of correct understanding. Peter's answer in the text, you are the Messiah of God. You're the Christ of God. That is correct. But Peter also had some wrong connotations about the correctness of that title and what it meant for this one true Messiah. And and so Jesus says to him essentially, yes, Peter, you're right about me being the promised anointer, the promised Messiah who will sit on David's throne and rule sovereignly over all the universe with a rod of iron. Yes, I will. That's what I'll do in my second coming. But in this coming, Peter, guys, let me fill you in a little bit more of the meaning of who I am as Messiah. I'm the Christ who must be sentenced by the Sanhedrin. That's what those three Jewish groups mean. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. The Sanhedrin's made up of those. I must be sentenced to death and be actually killed in Jerusalem for the sins of my people. And I will rise from the dead, guys, on the third day. Okay, so, got to get this, because this is our life too. Peter was correct. When he said, you're the Christ, he's got it. You're right. My Father revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. But he also needed to come to deeper and deeper levels of understanding of what that meant about Jesus' personhood and his mission. Same with us. Even as we look now, On this side of the cross in history, and Luke relating it to us, we make affirmations that are even deeper than Peter could have known with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. We make affirmations that you, Jesus, here's my answer, you're the crucified, suffering, killed, buried, resurrection, Lord of the universe and sovereign over all. We say, oh Jesus, you prophesied exactly what would happen to you. You were sovereign even over the sinful acts of the Sanhedrin and the Gentiles with Pilate in putting you to death. You were not some helpless victim. The Jewish leaders with the Gentiles, we see clearly now, though they were utterly guilty for their horrific sin of putting the eternal Creator in His humanity to death, And yet, that one who laid down his life 
was sovereign over all of it. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, go tell Peter I've risen, who denied him. About five or six weeks later, Peter preaches his first sermon. And oh, he he still believes, like he did then, you're the Christ. But his level, deepening level of understanding, it's bedrock down when he says this in his sermon, chapter 2 of Acts, starting with verse 23. This Jesus delivered up to the cross, to murder, according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You, my fellow Jews, crucified, and killed by the hands of lawless, sinful men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. He didn't contradict his statement that was correct at Caesarea Philippi, but the understanding of it was certainly a lot deeper than it was at Caesarea Philippi. That's a lesson. That's so much at the core of what the Christian life is about. Growing and growing in deeper and more profound and shocking revelation given in the Bible of who this Messiah, Savior, salvation is. For instance, back in 1981, you can use you, as a 19-year-old kid, reading the Bible by myself for the first time in my life, and the wind blows. And I'm struck with the person of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross and being raised from the dead. And my heart was eternally changed. Embrace him. Okay. I had saving faith. I am no more justified in the sight of God through Christ today than I was 30 years ago. I was saved. I believed. I was a believer. That's not the end, that's the beginning. That's the start. There's so much more. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father And I will love Him. Now hear Him. And manifest, unfold, reveal myself to Him. So Jesus, you come. I love you now. You got it. And now from that time, I will be revealing myself to you who obey me. That's the joy 
of the Christian life. Growing in the knowledge of Christ. Not just intellectually. Not just experientially. You cannot, really, you cannot whether in a marriage, I love my wife, I have emotions, but it cannot be separate from my intellect knowing of her. And neither can knowing Christ. It's not merely intellectual. There is a communion to know Him. You remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. What is the essence, Jesus, of eternal life? To know you, my Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. It is to get the answer of who is He and to embrace that interpersonally with your heart and it is the essence of worship in knowing him I'm born again I'm saved by faith that's what I said in 81 and by God's grace it was true Jesus you're the savior you're the Christ you're the Messiah and he says this yes You are right, Peter. You are right, Joe. But there's so much more now for you to see. The Christian life is to come to Christ. It is the result of our eyes by the Father, by the Spirit, being open to see. You are my Savior. You are the Messiah. You're in. I've justified you. I've shown you this truth. By my grace you have come. You are, when it comes to the answer to that question, objectively right. Correct. And then comes the experience after experience of hearing Jesus go on and speak. Of the experience of sticking with Him, not running Peter. Sticking with Christ. Sticking with the written Word of God. And as you do, like Peter, you hear things that at times are hard to swallow. He says stuff over the last 30 years. That when I first professed him, you're the Christ. He says stuff in this book that you don't expect. Guys, I am the Messiah. Get it, guys. I'm going to go get murdered. You know, Matthew lets us know more about that conversation. Peter has a reaction. No! Wait, wait, wait. Peter, did, he, 
You're the Christ. You're the Savior. Okay, let me tell you more, Peter. Uh-uh! Can't be! And that's Jesus' famous rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Now, he didn't mean that somehow Peter, that man, that fisherman's mind wasn't at work. No, it's not what he meant there. He does see Satan's influence behind this man, Peter, who could not swallow at this time what that would mean. And Jesus knew Satan, after, remember chapter, was it three or four, his temptation in the wilderness. And the text says, and Satan left him for a more opportune time. Well, here was one. Jesus is getting closer to the cross. Okay, But here's the point. Peter, you're right! And then he says, what the Word of God says, standing in front of me, is flesh. He said, that can't be right. Well, and then the Word of God rebuked him mercifully. Peter's faith, his trust, his confession, which was put there miraculously by God the Father, his faith was real. Peter himself was real. Okay? This is the Christian life. But then, the Bible, the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God, or right here with Peter as our model, Jesus went on to shatter Peter's preconceived ideas about God and about the Christ and about the Messiah. Peter, guys, I did not come in order to wipe out Rome. Not yet. I did not come to bring heavenly bliss on earth for Israel. Yet. I did not come to meet everyone's felt needs so they can go on living in idolatry with the help of God. I came to deal with the fundamental problem of the human race. Sin. That's why verse 20 says, The Son of Man must suffer. Jesus' death was necessary. And it was the inevitable part of God's eternal plan before He created anything. His plan to snatch sinners from our just condemnation. Guys, he says, I must suffer and be killed and rise again. Have you come to Jesus? In that question, what we think about 
this Jesus that we say we come to or not, what we think about Him is of ultimate importance. We must come to the conclusion that yes, You are the promised Messiah. God's uncreated, eternal person who is God that became a human being according to the beginning of Luke through this virgin Mary. In order to be killed, buried, but you rose from the dead on the third day and you have ascended to heaven and are sitting at the right hand of the Father ruling and you will come back again in that same body one day and raise the dead and bring to consummation this salvation you bought and you will then sit as judge over every human being who has ever come into existence. Christ would say, My Father revealed that to you as you read the objective words or heard them preached to your ears. So, again, let this sit on you for days and weeks to hear the words of Jesus from this text. Who do you say I am? That's the question. And for you teenagers, that's the question. Your parents can't answer it for you. And it's not merely an intellectual answer. That's the question that every human being must answer for themselves. And so, as Peter's deeper understanding, oh, did he understand deeper. Listen to the propositional truths that come out of this guy's mouth when he preaches to the Jewish leadership in Acts 4. His confession is getting deeper. It's not different. But it's more full. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. Got it. He's, he's a f- referring to Isaiah the prophet who speaks like this. What Isaiah talked about, about the builders rejecting, this is what you, my fellow elders of Israel, did. You rejected him. By killing him. But he has become the cornerstone. And this salvation is in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul, he writes it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, in a declarative, propositional way. If you, anybody, 
if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved from your sin. Is that a glorious truth? Do you glory in this Christ who had to literally, really, in His humanity, say to the twelve one day, I must go to Jerusalem to be killed. That one, what a salvation. What a glorious salvation. If He is yours, if He's not Make Him. Embrace Him. Now, as I close, He put those truths in us for our salvation and in order to carry them in these earthen vessels to the world. That's why Paul now went on after that in Romans 10 to say this truth. For... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Oh, they've got to believe in order to call. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they never heard? If they don't hear, they can't believe, and they can't call. And how are they to, to hear without someone preaching? Preach. Beg God to make us at Sovereign Grace better and more courageous and caring and loving evangelist in our lives. Because it is the Word going forth that is the means to some who hear to believe. And when they believe, they'll call. When they call, they too will be eternally saved. Let us be a people daily bowing to this glorious Savior of our souls and deriving from Him the joy and the courage to preach to a lost and dying world. Amen. And so Lord, would You be working this in Your Utterly diverse ways to the glory of Christ, to the effectual seed planting and witness of each of us in the lives of others, to the glory of Christ. Amen.